Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Tuesday, October 10th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, some Jackson residents want more transparency in how the city's sewage system will operate under a court order. Healthcare workers are meeting in Jackson to call for Medicaid expansion, plus a new book uses the history of Native Americans in Mississippi to spin a tale of mystery and adventure. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Jackson residents are demanding change as sewage overflows and that continues to be a problem in their neighborhoods. More than 200 emergency sewer failures were listed in a federal court order placing the third-party water system manager in charge of improving Jackson's failed sewer system. Now signs are in yards warning the public of exposure to raw sewage. Robert Pugh, a resident of Jackson in the Woodhaven neighborhood, has this to say. But I want to show you what, what we, uh, we have sewer overflow. My situation with respect to the sewer overflow is not as bad as some other areas here. Now, of course, and you know, we haven't had any real rain in quite some time, but what I have experienced in the past is when it rains real hard or over a long duration, my front clean-outs right here, they, those, I had to, I had to go and find tops that I've never seen for clean-out drains uh, so that when the water would get so bad, it, drains would mix with the sewer line and water would start backing up into my house. The sewage mixed with rainwater would back up in through my bathrooms, my toilets, my tubs, and then out on the floor and all of that. I don't have photos of that, but I do have photos of this front in terms of what happens when it rains real hard. And also the manholes, there's one manhole at the intersection there, white stone and white. When it rains real hard, water just shoots up out of that manhole. Another manhole is, is right up here uh, past that uh, stop warning sign. And uh, same thing. But what we have here with respect to the drain, and that's a different 
portion of what I've learned over the years of public works. Sewer and drains, they are separate departments. My major issue is, aside from the sewer overflow, is the drainage. You see this drain culvert right here? This drain right here runs between the two homes. Pew says he can't even allow his grandchildren to play in the backyard because of a hole that's formed due to a drain collapse. Back in May of this year, and I, this has been a problem that began, that I first began to notice my backyard eroding back in 2018. And in 2019, it got to the place where I just, ah, this is continuing to grow. That's when I began to contact Public Works in the city of Jackson. And we have constantly tried to get attention to this problem officially since 2019. Both my neighbor and myself, Miss Eubanks, and they came out in May of this year and marked this tree and I was told by the gentleman from Public Works, the Drains Department, that they finally had identified the funds to get this problem addressed and corrected. But they had to take out this tree, and they had to bring in a contractor to first get the tree out. Well, it is now, uh, they said that they would, the funds had been found, and they would get this done starting late summer, early fall. Well, here we are, early fall. I haven't seen anything, uh, but they, they did mark this tree. That's all that, that I've seen done on this. Watch your step here. And we can walk all the way back, and this is, that drain is down underneath here. When it now and when it rains real hard, since that drain is so rotten and old and collapsed, water builds up from the street and run all the way down here through my yard. Pugh and other residents in the Woodhaven community formed a committee that's consulting an attorney. They're discussing the damage done not just to their property values, but to their quality of life. Attorney Peter Stewart says the city needs to be held accountable for the situation these residents are placed in. This whole entire area is going to be degraded, okay? Uh, we know how property values work. An appraisal is done of you know, three houses in the area. What did they sell for? Okay, if you know a tenth of the houses all have some sort of form of this problem, one of the one of the three, you know, sewer, ditch, water. Okay, it's going to lower property values. Okay, because of a problem, not that any individual landowner can do anything about. It, okay, it's, it's not their purview. They're being told. Oh, this is not the city's problem, it's your problem. Oh, no, they can't afford to fix this problem because the problem is so far, it's down the line. You do this, and then if you let, you're going to let one community fall through the floor? No, you can't have that. Now that the spotlight has been shown, 
Yes, because $600 million is coming from the federal government. Yes, because of the CCI, the, this, these battles, if you would, that shouldn't even happen, my God. But because, yes, because the spotlight is here, yet we're striking now. We're standing up. We're saying, look, we better be, we better be recognized, okay, because we don't want to, you know, be left behind. Because if you go through Jackson, there are what I call dead streets, meaning the city has suspended any type of maintenance on that street whatsoever. All vacant houses, that's, gonna, that's what's going to happen to neighborhoods, because this person has to leave. This person has to just move. And if the house can't be sold, hey, I guess I'm going to let it be foreclosed. The bank's going to own it. And then here you go. You're going through your neighborhood, and here every other house is empty, vacant. And if you want to see property bags go through the floor, watch and see as the vacant houses start popping up. Some other residents have already filed a lawsuit against the city of Jackson. Coming up, healthcare workers are meeting in the capital city to call for Medicaid expansion. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Richard Gershon, the host of In Legal Terms and a professor at the University of Mississippi School of Law. If you miss a live In Legal Terms episode, find our podcast, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Public Broadcasting. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Healthcare workers and activists continue to call for an expansion of Medicaid for the working poor in the state. Democratic Representative Sakia Summers of Jackson held a press conference outside of St. Dominic's Hospital Monday. She says the hospital will soon shut down their behavioral health department, limiting the options patients have for seeking the care they need. Over 150 workers are being laid off. Those services will no longer be available to the patients here. And it's because... Uh, Mississippians cannot afford health care. They can't, they can't access health care because they can't afford it. And hospitals are dealing with uncompensated care as a result of that, and they have to make hard decisions. And so we're here today to say not only do we need to expand Medicaid in the state of Mississippi, but we have a Democratic nominee for governor that is willing to do that on day one. Brandon Presley has already announced that he's going to expand Medicaid and provide health uh, access to health care to over 200,000 Mississippians. Not only is that going to give access to folk, everyday folks here in the state of Mississippi, it's going to help to create good paying jobs. It's going to improve our infrastructure. Uh, it's going to put Mississippi on a track of creating a state where people cannot just survive, but they can thrive. So that's what we're here today to do. Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act has been strongly opposed by many Republican leaders, including Governor Tate Reeves and outgoing Speaker of the House Philip Gunn. Gunn announced last year he wasn't seeking re-election, and Speaker Pro Tem Jason White has indicated he would be open to discussing the issue if elected House Speaker. Summers says she is hopeful this could renew conversations about Medicaid expansion in the chamber. I think Medicaid expansion has always been on the table for a number of years, but it's been the lack of political will coming from the top. And, you know, if the leadership is not in support of it, then it's unlikely that the people inside the legislature will be in support of it. 
I am very hopeful and grateful that uh, the Speaker Pro Tem has put this issue to the forefront and say that we can at least discuss it. But we need to do more than discussing it. We've seen the data. We know that hundreds of thousands of Mississippians don't have access to the health care that they need. We've seen the fact that if we can put some money into an account, say you put $100 million into the account like we did with the, with the grant program, then you just have $100 million that maybe some hospitals can access and others can't. But if you expand Medicaid and you put $100 million in an account, you got $900 million. Imagine the, the infuse of that money into a state like Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the nation. We're talking about creating good jobs. We're talking about improving our infrastructure. We're talking about retaining and recruiting healthcare workers. We're talking about limiting the brain drain of our young people leaving the state of Mississippi because they don't have the opportunity that they need. It's a win-win decision. And so I hope that the legislature will be on board to actually getting it done this time. Governor Tate Reeves did recently announce a plan that could strengthen the reimbursement rates Medicaid pays to hospitals. Under that plan, the rates would be closer to that of private insurance, but it must be approved by the legislature and the federal government. Summer says those actions aren't enough for a health care system that's in crisis. Well, I can appreciate the governor, you know, coming out with the plan. But it always seems like he's coming out with a plan at the last minute when we're about to uh, throw the whole baby out with the kitchen sink. All right. Same thing happened with postpartum. You know, we didn't hear any support from the top about postpartum until women started making a big fuss about it. And then all of a sudden it was politically convenient for him to say, oh, let's go ahead and pass postpartum. This hospital crisis has been going on for years. This is not something that just bubbled up out of nowhere. We should have and we could have had leadership to say, I'm going to take this issue seriously and I'm going to put forth a plan that involves legislators, local leaders, health care leaders and others to say, let's come up with something that's going to be a comprehensive solution. And then also, let's not be confused. The governor cannot do anything unless we're in session. He has the ability to call a special session right now and say, we're going to address this health care crisis. He has failed to do that. So while this plan may be a good idea right now in the fall of 2023, when we've been hearing about hospital closures for the last couple of years, we are not able to actually make any action until we go back in January. So we need somebody that's going to be ahead of the game, not waiting until we're in crunch time and now we want to figure out what the game plan is going to be. We have to come up with a solution right now to handle what's happening in the state of Mississippi. Our constituents deserve it. Our children deserve it. And it's time for the leadership to get on board with it. And that's why we're here on this campaign stop. And we will continue until November 7th to continue to shout from the mountaintops. We need access to health care. We need Medicaid expansion in Mississippi right now. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Teresa Roberts, a retired community nurse from Shannon, which is in the Tupelo area. She says many folks would rather not see a doctor than deal with the lofty bills they would face without health insurance. The citizens of Mississippi that I help on a day-to-day basis need Medicaid expansion. We have so many people who are traveling, you know, 45 minutes to an hour to get to a local emergency room 
a hospital. And then when I look at New Orleans, one of the hospitals in New Orleans, since they accepted Medicaid expansion, they ain't had any more hospital closure. We're in a hospital closure crisis right now. It's a health crisis. And Brandon has promised that when he is in office, he's going to extend Medicaid expansion. That's why I'm here today. As a nurse, what have you seen in your time at helping people and seeing medical bills rack up? I would say that I've seen people who won't go to the doctor. I've seen people who could have been in stage one breast cancer or prostate cancer because they didn't go to the doctor because, oh, it'll go away or it's nothing because I don't have the money to go to the doctor. I've seen this. I've had to go with them to the doctor to help them make decisions, the best treatment, because they waited too long. But they waited too long because they didn't have the funds to go to the doctor. This is what I've seen. I've watched people die. I've sit by their bed. I've held them in my arms because they didn't have the money to go to the doctor. And so when we have people with that income, they're trying, but they can't afford that insurance. That is where Medicaid expansion can step in and help. You shared a story that was really powerful earlier about your husband. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, my husband recently had a major back surgery, which he was on the table probably about seven hours. Very critical surgery. And the bills <laughs> that we have received, I said, is astronomical. And we are both retired with incomes, but it's not enough. And so when I look at all those bills, I think about those people who don't have two or who don't have a retirement income trying to manage their day-to-day -day bills of eating, the activities of daily living, and trying to pay those bills. That's important to me. Teresa Roberts is a retired community nurse from the town of Sharon in the Tupelo area. Coming up, a new book is using the history of Native Americans in Mississippi to spin a tale of mystery and adventure. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Family owned. You know, I respect my dad a lot. I know it wasn't easy when he passed the baton to me, but in the end, he realized it was the best thing for the business to sometimes look at things from different color lenses. Family owned a legacy leadership podcast exploring family businesses who make up the backbone of the American economy. Listen now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or go to mpbonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new book from a Mississippi author tells the story of a man who stumbles on a centuries-old secret with ties to the Hatchie River, Chickasaw Indians, and Solomon's Temple. Ed Doc Holliday is author of the new book, Hatchie, Keeper of the Secret. And he's a dentist, a retired dentist. He says it's based on his experiences growing up in northeast Mississippi, hearing stories about the Chickasaws and those that were nearly lost during the Trail of Tears. Keeper of the Secret is actually a short story that I worked on 25, 30 years ago, just sitting there. And then as I realized I could develop this into a series, it, it just became the, the stepping stone, the first book to uh, open up this series called Hatchie. What is Keeper of the Secret? College student Patrick comes upon a Chickasaw secret? 
that's the theme of the book, and and it's the Chickasaw secret ties back to King Solomon's temple, so it that makes it even a deeper tie back to the secret, and that's part of the series. That's what brings the series about. How did you come up with the idea of a Chickasaw secret? Well, I grew up in northeast Mississippi, and I heard. Uh, Chickasaw tales. Uh, I enjoyed. I took a folklore co- course when I was at uh, Ole Miss, and and I had to go out and find some folklore. And, and I already knew some, but I went out and talked to people. Some of the, you know, some of the original uh, Chickasaws who did not go on the Trail of Tears. Some of them stayed on the land. Of course, I don't remember any of them, but there were people who were alive that had talked to them in the early 1900s. And and anyway, told some of the Chickasaw tales that I've uh, heard and and I've always remembered. And I, I thought, hey, that that would uh, be good to and to do something with and eventually. So that uh, now that's where I was bringing bringing some of those tales into being. So you have this secret from Native Americans that Patrick, the college student, has uncovered over the summer while working. Kind of tell us a little bit more about what takes place. Well, what happens, and this is called Hatchie, Keeper of the Secret, because in the Hatchie Hills, now people may have heard of the Hatchie Hills, they don't know where they are, but it's around the Hatchie River, and it sort of bubbles up from uh, Tippa County, Mississippi, and uh, it's the Hatchie will flow to the north, and people may be familiar with the Tallahatchie River. It also, on the other side of the hill, uh, I won't say it's the Hatchie Hill, but it, but it starts in Tippa County also. The Tallahatchie flows to the south, and the Hatchie River flows to the north. And so that's where the word Hatchie comes from. And there's a place, up, they'll call it the Hatchie Bottom, the Hatchie Hills, and it's really a broad place up in tip of Alcorn County and the Hatchie River flows north up into Tennessee before it eventually goes in the Mississippi River. So that the, the area we're talking about is a wide expanse and my my family had some property on the little Hatchie River, has it still today. And uh so that those are some of my early adventures into the woods and hunting and, and working for my dad as he he would cut pulp wood and and that's uh, that plays a role in this first book, Keeper of the Secret, as far as uh, harvesting pup wood for trying to make some college tuition money that Patrick gets involved in. And then that's when they, uh, in the process, he stumbles upon this Chickasaw secret that uh, is tied back to King Solomon's temple. And we've used historical fiction, bringing in, mentioning the early uh, sightings of uh, the Spaniards when when uh, Hernando de Soto came through. That's mentioned in the book, and some things taken out of uh, historical happenings of in 1542 and 43 when Hernando de Soto came through. So I used some history tied in with, of course, fiction for the novel to build a build a story that uh, has a sort of uh, unexpected and exciting ending in the first book. And it introduces the characters to really prepare for book number two. What are the nuggets that you think are going to draw readers to the book? Because it's a mystery, you know, so you, you, yep. you're you not giving away too much. The thing that readers need to know 
as they read through it, they they understand the characters, but it's there's uh, gold involved, there's the mystery, there's action adventure, the part that the unexpected, not knowing what's going to happen, and so that's where as the reader goes into the book and understands some of the past, what's being searched for, what can happen. Uh, that's the drawing card of, of uh, it's action adventure with a twist of mystery that uh, you know unravels in a sort of authentic way. We we live in this uh, day and age of uh, uh, chat GPT and automatic books being written just spit out by the thousands, and so I want to give it a depth of authenticity that someone would have to know some of these things. To to help the imagination be spurred on to see what can uh, be developed here, right right in the Hatchy Hills. The Hatchy Hills could be Sullivan's Sullivan's Hollow. I mean, it could be anywhere in the state of Mississippi. It could be anywhere in the South, really. It's just the Chickasaws, more in the North Mississippi area, and of course the Choctaws and uh, in, in some North Mississippi. But it's uh, using a, some Native American stories or uh, myths and things are handed down and, and that uh, I took and just sort of sold into this uh, story that came about, didn't come about easy. Ed Doc Holliday, the author of his first historical fiction mystery novel, Hatchy Keeper of the Secret. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you, Desiree. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.